Hello and welcome to the Overland Journal podcast. I am your host, Scott Brady, and my co-host for today is Richard Giordano. We're going to talk about the Toyota pickup and Hilux. So this conversation will not include the Tacoma, or at least it'll just be some references. We will do the Tacoma in a future podcast. We're excited to do that. For today, we're going to really focus on the pickups that were imported to the United States in the 70s, 80s, and 90s before the Tacoma started. And then they were also available in Canada as well. And then we're going to continue on into some discussion around the Hilux because it is a really important model for us to reference and is available for people to rent or to purchase in other countries. And of course, we have listeners from over 100 countries that uh, participate in the podcast as well. So we want to make sure that we're talking about models that are relevant to them as well. And a special thanks to Red Arc for supporting this podcast. Looking to upgrade your solar setup or get your adventure rig ready for summer? Red Arc is proud to announce their new foldable solar blankets available in 160 watts, 240 watts, and even 300 watts of power output. These monocrystalline blankets allow maximum energy absorption even without direct sunlight. Paired with genuine Anderson connectors for easy and reliable connectivity. Also available as a kit including necessary cables and a solar regulator for a turnkey solution for those beginning their solar journey. Red Arc's new monocrystalline folding solar blanket panels and accessories are perfect for complementing their existing line of fixed folding and solar blankets. For the ultimate off-grid power setup, pair Red Arc's new solar panels with their already popular range of dual in-vehicle or battery management systems. Featuring next-generation battery charging technology and maximum power point tracking solar regulators, eliminating the need for a second regulator. And with built-in green power priority, it will select solar charging first, which means less of a load on your alternator. Red Arc's line of solar products have been torture tested in the rugged Australian outback and specifically designed for backcountry use where efficiency, durability, and reliability are key to having an enjoyable and safe overland journey. Well, I think, Richard, let's start off with your rich history with Toyota pickups. All right. Well, thank you for having me. Definitely not an expert on Toyota pickups, but I've spent plenty of time behind a wheel of a, of a <laughs> few of them. Years you have spent in yeah. that seat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now we actually, yeah, we actually have Richard's pickup behind us, which there is a great video on the Expedition Portal YouTube channel where Richard goes through all the things that he's, he's done to this vehicle. And it's in kind of in its final form, which we're going to talk through the modifications as well, because I think that's really important. Yeah. You years you have spent in that seat. Yeah. So in this specific truck, it's a 1990 Toyota pickup with a 22 RE and a five speed. Back in 2013, uh, Ashley and I put together a basic plan to get the truck roadworthy and drive it to South America. So within four weekends, we put an old man emu suspension system in it, put a new long block, new clutch flywheel, and kind of just cleaned up the interior a little bit, threw a rooftop tent on it and left. And, and if I remember, didn't you get, wasn't it like in a family member's backyard or something yeah, like that? Yeah. So it was, it was a work truck that my sister had been driving and she thought it was absolute trash. It was owned by my mom and, and her husband for the plumbing business and just abused constantly. Totally. I don't, I don't think any maintenance had been done the entire time they had it. Wow. So once I found, found it in the backyard, it had 320,000 kilometers on it. I thought it was the perfect foundation for a for an overland vehicle. Yeah. So, well, it turns out that it was. It, so far, so good. 
and this is true without the throughout the discussion around Toyota pickups, but one of the realities is is that it is one of the best vehicles to take overlanding because the fuel economy is always excellent. They they always have a great payload and they can be very affordable in the grand scheme of things. Like if you were to compare 79 Land Cruiser pickup against a Hilux, you know, it's a 30 to 40% premium depending upon the model configuration. The fact that you had this vehicle available from your family, I just think that that's such a wonderful story. It was about you guys wanted to go see the world. It just so happened that your mom had a Toyota pickup in the backyard. And I bet you if it was a Nissan, you probably would have taken that. It, yeah, it was available. You, you so. really wouldn't have cared what it was. I had a lot of confidence in in the truck. I actually owned a early 2000 Chevy Silverado at the time that was just a daily driver. I had memories of my first Toyota, which was an 88 Forerunner that never let me down. It was a three liter automatic that I put 35s on it and a sp- like welded diff in the back and just went everywhere in Western Canada. Sure. So I had memories of that truck just never being maintained and never letting me down. When I saw this, another red Toyota from the nineties in the backyard, I was like, that's it. That's perfect. What other Toyota trucks have you, have you had? I had a an 84 Toyota pickup, a little flatbed on it, 22R, five speed, uh, 88 Forerunner, three liter automatic. Wow. This 1990 pickup was in Costa Rica for a year while we went home and worked. I bought a 93 pickup with a three liter <laughs> five speed. So we've had a few of them. Well, and it's it's a similar story arc for me. The very first Toyota I ever bought was a 1984 Toyota pickup. I bought it in Idaho when I was in the military and it was flawless. It, now it didn't have the 22RE. It was a 22R five-speed no air conditioning, which is why it stayed in Idaho after I left the military. But it was it was just a perfect little truck. I did just enough lift on it. And I don't even remember how I did that. It was probably whatever the cheapest way you could get a, probably some spacers in the rear axle and some longer shackles in the front. I don't remember. You know, they had a shackle reversal from the factory, which made them uh, a lot easier to do that with. But it was just enough lift to fit a 33 on there, open diffs. And I did, I drove it all over Idaho with no issues. And it was just such a, a capable small truck, you know, fit 33s on it and you were off to the races. And then I had a, an 89, so a little bit newer than the forerunner that you had. So I had a, an 89 forerunner with the three liter and a five speed, which was a really nice combo. It was actually a really, it was a wonderful truck to drive and we sold it still fairly new. So I never ran into any of the kind of long-term reliability issues around the three liter, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. And then lots of time in Hilux, which is why I want to talk about it today. I've spent months living out of Hilux and freezing conditions. And then also just driving them all over the world, South Africa and Iceland and in Europe and South America. So I've spent a lot of time driving Hilux and I just, I have a real soft spot in my heart for them for sure. Now that the 25 year rule is coming into play, it's 15 years for Canada, but Mm -hmm. for those of us in the United States, it's 25 years. There's actually kind of the high watermark of the Hilux is right in that range right now where you could get a three LTE solid front axle diesel, little turbo diesel, right-hand drive Hilux in a four-door configuration or in a regular cab long bed configuration. And these are very special trucks and they're now available in that time frame, you know, of the mid nineties. Um, and that was the last of the solid axle Toyota trucks. I think it, they went up until the late nineties with solid axles, as I recall, they're available now, which is kind of exciting. Yeah, they're very cool. Every time I see one of those in, in Canada, cause we've got, we've had them there for years because our importation law is 15 15 years. Every time I see one, like I need that. Yeah. Yeah. My, my pocketbook and bank account don't say the same thing, but uh, you should figure that out. 
Yeah. Where you buy it at 15 years and then I'll I'll hold on to it for 10 and then I'll buy it from you at 10 years later or something. Would that be perfect? Oh, that's funny. So when we look at the Toyota pickups for North America, a lot of us remember those late seventies and early eighties trucks. These were solid axles at 20 R's, 22 R's in the later years. Uh, They were all carbureted and they were available in a couple different configurations. There was even some aftermarket coach builders that would turn them into like a suit a forerunner. Mm-hmm. I don't remember the name of it right now, but I actually had a friend of mine that, that had Probably one. Trekker. Trekkers. That's right. They were super cool. In general, we don't see those used a lot for travel. Now, the one exception to that is Chris Collard. So Chris Collard has an early 80s Toyota pickup that he has put through many different configurations and has probably seen more dirt in Baja than most Toyota pickups I can think of. So there are examples of those being used out there for sure. It's definitely with that kind of 1984 to 1995 would have been the last year of the Toyota pickup Mm -hmm. in the United States. And probably for Canada. Was it the same for Canada? And then you guys got the Tacoma after that? We did, yeah. I think that the high watermark, and I'd be curious to know your thoughts, but I think that the high watermark really was that kind of 93, 94, 95 truck. For me, I would want a regular cab, long bed if you could find it, which they were Mm -hmm. pretty rare, with a 22RE five-speed. That would be kind of magic. Yeah, it kind of depends what you're doing with it because the unicorns for the longest time were the 85, 85, solid axle, EFI. Yep. had all the good things. To be honest, I've been really, really happy with all the IFS trucks I've had, whether it's been Old Man Emu or the truck behind us has a total chaos, long travel. Sure. They just drive, so they drive like a modern car, yeah. like a modern truck. They are slow, but yeah. other than that, on-road manners are really, really good. Yeah. And I think for me, if I was building a trail truck, I would probably want the solid axle, but there are limitations to that too. So that eight inch front diff was only so durable with large diameter tires. And that ends up kind of being the challenge with it is that probably better off buying a newer Tacoma and then doing a solid axle swap on it with something that can really take the size of a 37, 38, 40 inch tall tire for rock crawling. Yeah. And with that small diff, I know with when you gear it properly to a 529, you can get into problems with the pinion being too small. Exactly. Weak. And I know I've, I've had 35s on a 93 pickup and ran lockers front and rear with that small pinion on the 529. And it's been, it's held up, but I'm also pretty careful with just knowing it's totally the driver. It's totally the driver. Yeah. I've never broken a diff because I just tend to employ a lot of mechanical sympathy when I drive, usually because I'm somewhere super remote and there's consequences to busting a front diff if you're you're someplace really remote. And also understanding are these reverse cut gears, um, which can make them extremely weak when you're trying to do an extraction of another vehicle in reverse. So just making sure that you know kind of the limits of that front end, which it, it is a fairly weak front end when you compare it to a solid axle. If I was to look at the Hilux, I would definitely be looking at the last of the years, the solid axle, because yeah. it kind of got the best of both. You got the same body style as your truck and a lot more modern conveniences in them, just better HVAC, better overall ride, you know, noise management, yep. quality of materials. They started to do a lot better with managing rust in those vehicles mm. as well, which was a big shift. Uh, that's why you don't see a lot of those 79 to 83 pickups yep. around anymore because they just rusted out on you. And then I was going to talk about that a little bit on the on the budget side of things, which you started off with. Even five years ago, these trucks were pretty inexpensive to buy. Yeah. And when we got ours, we were able to get it from our family for for nothing, but it was a thousand dollar truck when we got it. The equivalent truck nowadays is seven, eight, nine. Yep. And I, I've seen a truck. Uh, there was an 87 Toyota pickup that came into the gear shop the other day up in Calgary, Alberta, place I work when 
I'm not down here or traveling. It was a clean driver, but you know, it needed brakes and ball joints and tie rod ends and all these things. 22 RE, five speed, a little bit of rust, 25 grand. Prices have been going up. For sure. You just can't get those vehicles anymore. Mm-mm. And there are limitations with the newer vehicles as well. I mean, a, a new Tacoma, of course, is an exceptional truck. But what I noticed, and I'd be curious of your thoughts of this, is that when the Toyota pickup changed to the Tacoma, mm-hmm. it changed from a vehicle that was purchased to haul things to a vehicle that was purchased to haul people. Yeah, for sure. And that is true for most pickups in North America. They are used as daily drivers for great reason. I mean, I drive a full-size truck every day and it's a wonderful vehicle to drive around, even with family in it and everything else. It's just very comfortable. It's very, a lot of utility, but that's what changed because if you look at some of the payload numbers, if you were to look at a long bed 1984 Toyota pickup in the United States, it was available in a one ton variant. And that wasn't just a, an Imperial ton. That was a metric ton. Yep. So it had a 2,200 pound payload. Do you know the payload on your truck? Just over 1,700 pounds. So this that's- little pickup that makes a hundred horsepower with little eight inch diff with little tiny brakes, it, uh, yeah, the payload. 1740 pounds, I think, for this one. Our Tundra is just under 16 to give you an Yeah. Idea. And your Tundra is a full size truck. It's yeah. it's not the previous generation Tundra. No. It's the newer Second full gen, size. Big disc brakes all around, yeah. 10 and a half inch ring gear for sure. Yeah, it makes 400 horsepower, tons of torque. It can the difference with the Tundra is it can tow 10,000 pounds, whereas sure. this thing can tow 3,500. Right. Pickup. Yeah, it's kind of mind-blowing what the payload of these little Toyota pickups is. And that's because they kept them so simple. Mm-hmm. If you look at the difference in weight between a 22RE and a 5.7. Yeah, th- this truck, I think a curb weight when it was stock is 3,300 pounds. There you go. So as an example, I've got a 67 Mustang with a V8 and automatic, and that is 2,900 pounds. Yeah. So you're looking at a two-wheel drive car that's very basic for what it is. That's almost 3,000 pounds. And you got a four-wheel drive truck that's just slightly more than that. Yeah. No, that is certainly a great example. And that's what we saw. And that's why I think there's still the argument in North America for looking for Toyota pickups is that they had a proper payload Mm. so that you could actually, like you've done, I mean, let's walk through your build right now that you've gone through on this truck. Yeah. I'm going to start off with, and I think this build works so, so well in Mexico, Latin America, like throughout Latin America, where you don't have 80 mile per hour freeways, you know, probably wouldn't work so well in Saudi Arabia where the speed limit is 140 kilometers an hour (laughs) and you're trying to keep up. But in, I find in North America, it's hard to keep up with modern traffic because it just doesn't have the power and it's heavy. The brakes aren't as big and all the rest of it, but for long-term international travel, it just has this this like nice little sweet spot, has enough power, moves around just fine and just is perfect off-road for what we want to do. Yeah. Most developing countries, you're dealing with 80 kilometer an hour speed limits, maybe a hundred kilometer an hour speed limit. Yeah, exactly. So we just have to choose a little slower, like highways and byways. And if we can take a dirt road instead, I can go almost as fast on a flat dirt road as I can on a freeway. So it's uh, yeah, much better suited to those. It's a 1990 Toyota pickup. And I had the 22RE rebuilt by a friend, Ryan, up in uh, Abbotsford, BC, Disturbed Industries. He's I think he said this is 300th 22RE that he's built. So we use a lot of LC engineering performance products just to try to get a little bit more power out of the truck. I didn't really ever consider an engine swap because trying to just try to keep the drivetrain as stock as possible solely for ease of maintenance, uh, ease of getting parts and ease of any repairs up, sure. outside of country. So just tried to make it reliable fresh, make sure it didn't burn any oil. It works out great. We added a heavier flywheel to just help get the truck moving a little bit better, which made a, it made a bigger difference than any of the performance parts we added. Interesting. Yeah. So, and did you change the clutch out at the same time? We did. Yeah. So we did an ASIN clutch um, yeah. and the LCE 
thing is a 30 pound flywheel. Okay. So that made a big difference in getting the truck moving. Like now it feels like a stock truck instead of a 5,200 pound. And you probably truck. really notice it off-road in low range as well. It's yeah. less, probably less likely to stall. Yep. So it works really well, especially in those situations, uphill, trying to get the truck moving, low range. Um, also just climbing steep grades. It just holds the speed just a little bit easier than it did mm. before. So that's a nice touch. But yeah, again, we just worked really hard on making the truck reliable. So we put a Toyota radiator in, made sure that we had rebuilt the starter and alternator, all the things that we could recently that while the engine's out, it's easy enough to replace it. It's usually cheaper to replace it than it failing in the middle of nowhere and having sure. to get a truck towed back or having to fix it. Focused on reliability. I spent all of our budget time and energy and real money budget on the suspension. Did a total cast long travel suspension system only because I saw an article on this that Fred Williams did in four-wheeler, I think it was a four-wheeler or Peterson's four-wheel and off-road 15 years ago. Sure. And I thought, that's super cool. He put it in his truck, Clampy, jumped it in Glamis, I think is where, where it was. And I was like, I need that. Um, so 15 plus years later, uh, I thought I got an opportunity to try it out. So we did and threw Icon shocks all the way around. And that has made a world of difference in terms of whether we decide that we want to do a little bit of recreational off-roading or take a dirt road instead of a paved road. Sure. We almost always choose the, the dirt road now pretty fun. And then tried to keep the wheel and tire diameter weight as low as possible. So we did a 285-75-16 Toyo AT3, which I've been really happy with. Looks like the, on a steel wheel. It looks like it, but it's a 1552. Oh, nice. Oh, yeah. Those, yeah, are, those look great. Yeah, they're HD. Those look great. How much positive offset? Or are they fairly... Uh, they're zero offset. Okay. Yeah. But with a, the long travel in the front, it's a three and a half inch uh, long travel. So it's track width is seven inches wider overall. We just have been, uh, some fiberglass fenders that more or less cover the, cover the tread up front. Um, and then in the back, we just added wheel spacers instead of putting a different axle in. I've had decent luck with uh, the G2 wheel spacers that we've been using and just make yeah, sure if you use a, a high quality, so they like two and a quarter, two and a half uh, inch they, wheel spacer. They're, a one, they're only inch and a half. Okay. So the track and then rear is narrower and kind of similar to the, the newer troopies, I believe. Yeah. Same which thing. is, which is exciting at times. Yes, it on is. Sandy tracks or and muddy snow, tracks. mud. Yeah. For the amount of time we spend in those situations, it was a, it's not too bad. And then I just did a, I went back to an old trick I did years ago and put it 63 inch Chevys in Chevy Springs in the rear. So they're nice and long and flat. They've got the capacity to, to haul what is an additional almost 2000 pounds in this truck. I think when it's fully, fully sure. topped up, I haven't had a problem. So it's been a nice little, nice little combination of all these little parts and um, ideas that I've had over the last decade or two and kind of threw them all together and seems to, seems to work. Well, and you guys travel a lot solo. So mm. looks like you've made some considerations around self-recovery and animal strike protection. So you've got an ARB bull bar up front. We what, did. what made you decide on that? When we went to South America, we just had the stock bumper on the truck, no winch, just stamped steel, flimsy bumper bumper that weighed 12 pounds. Sure, <laughs> sure. And I felt once we got back to North America and we spent a lot of time in the Rockies afterwards, lots of elk, uh, lots of cattle on the back roads. I kind of felt we had used up all of our time. I kind of felt like we didn't have an issue for two years, but it could happen any point from now on, Sure, you know? So adding a Airbnb bumper to the front and a worn uh, M8000S winch up front was a big key just to like for peace of mind. Yeah. The M8000 is one that that people tend to overlook because of all these really fancy modern, mm -hmm. modern winches. But I actually think that it's one of the best winches that you can buy for a vehicle like that. They're reasonably priced. Uh, they're still made in the United States and with synthetic line and an aluminum Hawes Fairlead, yeah. you're at barely 50 pounds. Yeah. So the weight is much lower. It is. And when we didn't have a winch, there'd be plenty of times when we get into a situation and I thought, oh, you know what? If we did have a winch, maybe we could just attach to this tree and we wouldn't have to worry so much about sliding down this cliff on the other side. Sure. Whether it was snow or ice or 
whatever. Sure. So there've been a couple of times in the, in the past when we we're just going out to a trailhead, we're going out to hike. Sure. We're not meant to go do anything crazy in the Rockies again, when you're going up a path and you don't know if there's ice underneath. Totally. You're cruising up. There was one time in particular, we're cruising up. And I think there was a, a waterfall on the left side, left-hand side coming down from the cliff and a cliff like straight down on the right. Awesome. And we didn't know we're cruising along, just hit the, just hit ice under a couple inches of snow and the truck just Ooh. slides off a little bit to the right and eventually stops on some, some solid ground. And I'm like, Ashley, can you please lock the front hubs, please? <laughs> yeah, and totally. uh, they were, luckily we had some traction in the front. It was just in the rear that was, yeah, that yeah. was lost. And even in a situation like that, I'm like, you know what would have been really nice? Being able to take a winch, attach to the tree, tree saver strap, and just be secure Sure, because we were quite far out and nobody was around. Yeah. I mean, I'm questioning if you're even an overlander because I don't see a snorkel on your truck. I know. Yeah. Two reasons. Um, never felt like I needed it. Yeah. And also it doesn't fit on the fiberglass fenders. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Those fiberglass fenders are, they look so stock that I didn't even realize it until you said it. Yeah. Because they're not overly wide. They're Who not, makes those? Those are from Toyota Fiberglass in Penticton, British Columbia. This guy named Corey up there. Who yeah, they look really them. good. Yeah, I really like them. They were great because the ones that were originally on the truck were completely rusted. Oh, sure. Yeah. And uh, at the time, these were, the lead time was pretty short. So for 400 bucks pair of fenders and sprayed them with a can of spray paint. And that Did was you it. really? Yeah. A pretty close match. <laughs> like you can hardly tell. Oh, exactly. Everything's faded now. Faded, scratched. Now it doesn't look like there's a lot of rust on there, like in the bed and that, like, how is that even possible? Um, I don't know. I think it's magic. Uh, the, <laughs> some fairy dust. The, the frame has been undercoated at some point and sometimes that's good. Sometimes it's bad. But in our case, um, I haven't really found any frame rust. Pretty incredible. And on the body, it's starting. The rust is starting. You so leave it in Arizona more. Exactly. Every time it lives in Alberta for a little while, it gets, it gets worse and worse. A little angrier. So, sure. so cab corners are starting to get rusty and sure. uh, just under the windshield right now, under uh, the, there are two spots that, and I only noticed because there was some water dripping into the cab and after hunting it down, I found some work I have to do. Well, if you can stay on top of it. And then I like the configuration with the extra cab. What do you guys use for that space behind the seats? Yeah. So we have uh, one of the seats that's open for either hauling people or our thought is at some point when this thing will eventually end up overseas, I'm sure again, we have a space for a guide if we ever need a guide. Yeah. To sometimes come with us. you need to have a minder yeah, or a guide. Sometimes they call it a guide and it's actually a minder. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> Whatever it is. Turkmenistan it is. comes to mind. Yeah. Perfect. So so that's left open for him or her. And then uh, we have an alloy box behind my seat that I just use as a lock box to, to put our valuables while we have computer and camera. Oh, and so I see. On. Yeah. Got it. And that's where you keep your camera gear. And yeah. Everything. So it makes it a little bit more difficult for people to, to grab things. Sure. Uh, we had a lock box uh, when we were in South America, we had a lock box that went the entire width of the back seat. And the truck was broken into twice throughout our time there. Both times they punch the door locks, get inside, rifle around, they grab whatever's loose, but the lock box had a blanket. Well, we always had a Mexican blanket over top of the lock box. Sure. So they would open it up, see that they couldn't get in and take off. So they only had so much time. Exactly. It's just there to stop, you know, those little, little break and enters. Yeah. We had that in Nicaragua door, punch the door lock through, open the door and stole a couple things out of the front of a Ford pickup. Yeah. yeah, It's pretty quick smash and grab kind of stuff is what we tend to find. Exactly. And uh, the two times it happened, well, first time it happened, we knew it was our problem and our fault because we left some stuff out. That was easy to easily seen from the road. Yeah. After the second time happened, we tint the windows, (laughs) add another lock box. Sure. Really make sure that the interior is spotless every time we leave it. Right. No matter matter if it's 10 minutes, five minutes. Sure. No, you got to do that. Now above the cab, it looks like you installed a rail to support some crossbars. What did you do up there? Behind that, we did a, we've got a GFC 
um, version one camper that we tried to utilize as like a decent amount of inside living space. And by, well, to keep all the inside space free or as much as possible, we wanted to add a box out front with a little roof rack. Oh, that's smart. Are those easy on crossbars? Yeah. So we went uh, to equipped Expedition Outfitters and Paul May, he didn't drill the holes in the roof, but he, he watched as I did it. I can't say that I blame him. <laughs> no. Like, <laughs> hand you the drill. This, my man, it's, it's. He's like, here are the rails. Here's a drill. <laughs> yeah. Drill them here. So yeah. I drilled a series of holes on either side and rib netted the rails in. Sure. It's got some easy on crossbars and then a Pelican. I think it's a 1745 case across the roof, which is waterproof. And it just has all of our hiking and trekking gear in it. Oh, got it. So, got stuff, it. Like, so it's stuff that you need for the trip, but you don't access every day. Exactly. And it's all pretty lightweight. Sure. So I was okay with putting it up front and yeah, yeah. not worried about. Yeah. The go fast camper looks great on there. It looks like you've got an ARB awning on one side, some max tracks in the front. And then is that solar panels up there? Yeah. So we have a couple of hundred watt Samlex solar panels using go fast campers, solar panel trays. So they're just held on with some 3M adhesive. Oh, interesting. And, and just the way they're designed, they kind of, it's attached with a 3M, but also it's angled in. So it holds in the solar panel when it's, mm. once it's bolted in. Try to keep it pretty, I don't know, it looks like, to me, it seems like there's tons of stuff bolted on the truck, but trying to keep it clean and out of, out of sight most of the time. No, it, it looks like it would just be really useful to live out of. And then how do you have the inside of the Go Fast Camper set up to allow you to do work and kind of have some inside yeah. sleeping space? So we used a bunch of, I think it was two Goose Gear door modules and then connected it with an infill panel. So it's like a little L-shaped bench on one side. And then I built a cabinet on the left-hand side. That's a kitchen, has a nice little little countertop, little Dometic sink using a SureFlow pump and a Scepter 20-gallon wow. water tank. Wow. So it's got lots of stuff in there that makes it feel like home, but also it's all pretty pretty simple. And then a Dometic CFX 335 fridge. It's not too big, not too small. We can have fresh food for three or four or five days before we have to start diving into uh, any of the dry goods. Well, the yeah. truck looks great. You even got some rocker panel protection. And, and what do you have for in the diffs? What do you got for lockers? Yeah, so we have some G2 axle. 48s in the front and rear. Front is open and in the rear I use the nitro torsion limited slip. Okay. Yeah. So kind of set it, forget it. It has made a world of difference up north. I never worried about it when we went to South America. There was open diffs. Yeah. But when we got back home and we were spending a lot of time in the snow, it was it was a mess. Just like no traction whatsoever. Sure. Adding that rear traction made all the difference. Uh, <laughs> even just getting around town. Yeah. I remember one time I was I was on the Air Force base in that 84 pickup and I come up to a stop sign and I let out the clutch and, and the car's not going anywhere. And I grew up in Southern California, so yeah. please forgive me a little bit. But like, <laughs> and, and I'm like revving the engine and the car's not going anywhere. And I'm like, Oh, it's like something broke in the clutch. So I just like, I just left it idling, but I forgot that I left it in gear and I get out, I hop out of the truck and, and one of the front tires and one of the rear tires is just sitting there spinning. I had kind of put one of the front tires right on a manhole cover, just tall enough oh, where yeah, yeah. it wasn't going anywhere. And it made me realize like, Oh, I actually really only have a two wheel drive truck at this point. Now, is it gear driven limited slip or it is, is it? Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. nice. Yeah. I've had a super limited slip in a, in a truck before. So that's a clutch clutch type. Yeah. But yeah, this is gear driven and it's silent and it always works. Yeah. Even if the tire comes off the ground, it's still, there's still traction. So I've been really happy with it. Most of you ever put a little preload into the parking brake to help give it a little bit more effectiveness in certain uh, terrain. I definitely did that in the past, but yeah. I haven't had to do that so far with. Cause you got so much tire and yeah, travel and, and everything and else on it. Yeah. There's tons and tons of down travel right now with those rear springs. So there's always, always a tire on the, well, almost always Perfect. a tire on the ground, which Perfect. is great. Well, it looks great. And when it comes to talking about the Toyota pickup, I think this is a, a great example of what's possible with these trucks where 
where let's say even today you could find a vehicle like that for eight to $12,000 and a whole build without the long travel. But if you did old man emu and you did a go fast camper and everything else, you could be under 25,000 bucks all in on a vehicle that's been well-proven to travel around the world. The other upside to that is this particular platform was sold almost everywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. So to find even an A-arm, a steering knuckle, clutch, a clutch. In in Colombia, we are, I'll blame Panama traffic at 45 degrees Celsius and stop and go with a heavy truck that wasn't re-geared at the time or destroying the clutch in the truck at one point. So we had it replaced in Barranquilla in Colombia at Iguana 4x4. Oh yeah. But we rolled that's great. Yeah. And we rolled up. Okay. Here's the thing. Clutch is going out. Also clutch master needs to be rebuilt and wheel bearings need to be done. Is it possible that you guys could do this sometime in the next few weeks? Pull the truck apart, grab the clutch, grab the clutch um, friction disc, run to Toyota. There was one on the shelf. They grab all like rebuild kit for the clutch master and they grab wheel bearings and it's all done within a day. Everything's on the shelf. No worries. When we were in Lima, we did tie rod ends. I usually have to grab idler arms every, I don't know, 30, 40,000 kilometers on this truck. It seems to eat through them pretty quickly. Gotcha. So finding idler arms was no problem everywhere we went. Yeah, it was, I think that was like by far the biggest benefit is every mechanic we went to or anybody who helped in any way to get us, like help us keep moving through Latin America had seen these trucks. They'd worked on these trucks. Parts are always available for these trucks. Sure. So it was, uh, it was no surprise to anyone, including you. I mean, you go and a mechanic sees that vehicle pull in or even at the Toyota dealership, it's not going to be like you just rolled in in some, you know, Tacoma where there are some components of the front suspension of the Tacoma that were shared with the Hilux, but very few. Mm-hmm. The engine is, I think that engine is only available in a couple countries outside of North America, like Saudi Arabia probably, I think still gets the 3.4 and the 4.0 they, and other. Yeah, they still other put two sevens at 3RZ. They still yeah. put in, in new trucks in the yeah. Fortuner. And that was actually the 2.7 to the Tacoma's credit was actually a fairly common motor yep. around the world. The 2.7 was for sure, but the 3.4 wasn't. It just wasn't that common of an engine. Yeah, a, it was available in some, I remember, I remember seeing them in Prados yep. um, in Latin America. Yeah, I'm not too sure about other otherwise. Yeah, not super common, it's especially when compared to the 22RE, yep. which was available everywhere. And that transmission is the same as most of the other Toyota trucks as well. So you just have the opportunity for serviceability if you need it. And that's another thing about this version of the truck is that when I think about the three liter, I'm less inclined to think that that's a good idea for two reasons. First of all, it wasn't very ubiquitous or around the world. So the three liter V6 was just really not that available in other countries. It was available in some, but most it wasn't. The premium engine would have been the diesel, but 22RE is available. And the other side is of it is that the, the three liter is not particularly reliable. They have head gasket issues and other problems uh, that creep up with some mileage on those trucks. And it, certainly there are people that have gone 300,000 miles in a three liter without any trouble. As far as Toyota engines go, it was the, re- the least reliable of the ones that we got here in North America. Yeah. One thing that's really, really nice about that four cylinder 22 RE or in the newer ones with a 2.7 3RZ is that when there's so much room in an engine bay, you can service it very easily. So whether you're doing alternator or starter or just like valve adjustment, whatever it is, there's plenty of room to do it yourself in a campground. Yeah. Or add a second battery and add an air compressor. All those things are really easy to put into the engine bay of a 22 RE. Yeah. And even when adding the, the winch bumper and the winch to this thing, um, I still had to go to a 500 pound per inch spring because the 600 pound that originally came with the shocks was just too stiff. Interesting. So, so light. So, so light. <laughs> and special thanks to Equipped 
for supporting today's podcast. More than 15 years ago, Equipped Expedition Outfitters became the first American company to import the best in breed vehicle expedition equipment from across the globe. Since their humble beginnings, they have risen to become a go-to leader within the adventure travel industry, continuing to deliver a diverse portfolio of reliable, long-lasting products backed by unparalleled customer service. From shelter solutions from EasyOn to portable fridges from National Luna to aluminum storage boxes from Alubox, their ever-growing selection of best-in-class gear increases your capability, comfort, and confidence during any adventure. Visit equippedone.com to gear up. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Well, when we get to the year 1995, mm-hmm. now, was this the same for Canada? This was the end of the Toyota pickup? It was, yeah. All right. So that was the end of the Toyota pickup. The Tacoma comes onto the scene, which we're not going to talk about much today. So we kind of need to shift our thinking towards the Hilux. And there's a reason why this kind of 1995, 1996 year is also very relevant to this conversation. In Canada, at 15 years old, you can import vehicles from Japan and other countries. The Hilux was sold throughout Europe. It was also sold extensively in Japan. The real upside of buying a JDM vehicle is that owners tend to take really good care of them. They have a bunch of regulations that require them to be well cared for if they're still on the road. And they also tend to have very low mileage Mm -hmm. and they just really don't tend to be abused very much. They have a lot of upside with that. The downside is that you have a right-hand drive. I've owned a bunch of right-hand drive vehicles and they're just really not that fast and it just really doesn't matter. And it's kind of a... Yeah, we had a 93 Delica. So it just does... Just putting along the right side, accidentally hitting the windshield wipers when you want to hit the side. (laughs) Yeah, that's a guarantee for sure. Yeah, Yeah, but it's really not that big of a deal to drive a right-hand drive. Uh, And we talked about this a little bit in the South America conversation, but there are countries where you can't bring a right-hand drive into it. Like uh, El Salvador is one, maybe Nicaragua is a problem now. So So there's, there are countries where you can't either ship the right-hand drive into it, or it's very difficult to move it through those various countries. So that's, it's important to note that there are problems with right-hand drives in left-hand drive countries. If you come to the border, you try to import it through a port, just be aware of that. But as far as daily driving a right-hand drive, it's never really bothered me. I kind of like it. You know, you talk about the bank teller line or the fast food restaurant. Fortunately, I don't use, I don't go to fast food that often, but I have definitely backed through a fast food <laughs> line. This is the part that I loved about it the most is that the person at the at the window didn't even notice the fact that, I mean, my body was where it was supposed to be, but they didn't notice the fact that I was facing Wrong the other way. direction. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> fantastic. It's just like, it just shows how rote their process is throughout the day. They yeah. just like hand me out the bag of food. You have one thing to worry about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So for Canada, you're able to get a, right now it'd be a like a 2007 mm-hmm. Hilux yep. into the country, uh, which would be an amazing vehicle. Yeah. You're you're into D4D territory by then. Yeah, Ashley and I spent a lot of time in in a couple of those trucks in Costa Rica a couple of years ago yep. when Ashley was running Women Overlanding the World tours down there. It was more like Women Overlanding the World with Richard taking photos for everyone. <laughs> um, so it was another girls trip plus Richard. But uh, we were in, or they always had four or five Hiluxes that they would rent. So we spent tons and tons of time in those. Mm-hmm. Whether it was, what'd you think? I loved it to the point where I've 
definitely looked into importing one, mostly from Panama. The process is pretty easy. Um, left-hand drive, trucks, oh, double cab. And you have to drive it back. D, exactly. That'd be and amazing. the price point for like a 2005-6 is about half the price of what an equivalent uh, Tacoma is right now. So you can have a Hilux, D4D, diesel, and- Probably going to have air conditioning. Probably can have air conditioning. Yeah. Um, something I'm not used to with the, <laughs> with the 90 pickup. I don't know. Definitely thought about it. Yeah. And I think that for those of us in North America, this is a very strong argument to get a D4D Hilux. Manual transmission is easy to find. They're typically going to be manual. There will be some service vehicles that won't be, but for the most part, you're going to be able to find manual transmission D4D Hilux. It's going to make for an incredible around the world vehicle. For those of us in the United States, it's still a great option at 25 years because this is the very last of the solid axle. Mm -hmm diesel Hilux. So they were available in a quad cab with a really short bed. I think it's around four and a half, five yep. foot bed on the back of it. You can get manual transmission. It's a three LTE. I had a two LTE in an LJ78 Land Cruiser. And those you have to be very, very careful around engine temperatures and exhaust temperatures because they do have head gasket and head cracking and other issues that can occur. They resolved a lot of that with the 3LTE and they tend to be fairly reliable. So you're kind of in this option of getting a fairly modern, really easy to drive on the road, small displacement, turbo diesel, solid axle, leaf sprung, Hilux, and you can bring it into the United States. And if you find one in Portugal, it's not going to have any rust. It's going to be left-hand drive. Maybe you find one in Panama, if mm -hmm. you're lucky, and make it an adventure driving it back from the Darien Gap to yeah. wherever you live in the United States. Exactly. And I think for me, after having an extended cab pickup, the biggest benefit of those trucks is that quad cab. Yeah. And you can haul all your friends, all your gear, whatever you need. Yep. You do lose the, the bed length for sure. So if you're building a truck that you want to live in, it's pretty much not going to happen. But I wonder if you you could still do something like a go fast, and just really yeah. lever it out over the cab. I mean, it is a shorter bed than the Tacoma. So maybe you'd have to twist somebody's arm or yeah. find somebody that can make one for you but, custom. But, but even but. if you do a, a flat bed, maybe it's a five foot flat bed, sure. maybe a little pop-up box on the back. It'd be awesome. That sure. would be awesome. Yeah. Otherwise, I've seen a lot of flatbeds and canopies. So trays and canopies like the Australian style builds. Yep. And those are awesome. If you want to have a truck that you live out of rather than live in, it's a good option for sure. And it's important to remember too, that the aftermarket support for those, that truck is prolific because yep. they were sold in Australia. They were sold in South Africa. They were sold all the way throughout Europe. There's tons of aftermarket support. The Australians had those trucks completely yeah. figured out. Yeah. ARB, Dobbinson's, TJM, right. all of those. You can just call up, get in a suspension sent over. And, yeah, it would yeah. be really easy to do that. And I think ARB tends to be fairly friendly to that. Mm -hmm. They even have a lot of that in stock here in North America because they service South America and Central America as yeah. well. So when someone's buying a suspension for a Hilux in South America, it's going to be delivered out of the containers that come in from Australia to the US. Yeah. So there's quite a bit of inventory. Even an ARB front bumper is not going to be too difficult to get for that oh. truck. We're starting to see this very exciting time. It's literally the mid-90s for whatever reason. It was the pinnacle of overland vehicles. Now, that was what I always said. Now I'm starting to retract that a little bit because arguably the vehicles that are available right now mm -hmm. are better, right. which I would have never imagined, but you can get a diesel gladiator, solid axle, diff locked, turbo diesel gladiator in 2022. And that that's kind of hard to make an argument against right. a vehicle and like that. And any new vehicle is going to have the reliability that you need to travel around the world that's for right. years. For yeah. Sure. There's a lot of argument 
to the fact that any new vehicle you get is going to be more reliable than a 40-year-old Land Cruiser, unless the Land Cruiser has been completely rebuilt. But then as soon as you get it out of that kind of new processes and yeah. assembly line, it just, you're going to have little things crop up. Yeah. Anytime you touch something, you're going to make it worse in the factory. That's right. So reliability is going to go down for sure. And you just have to know that. But I think the nineties are they're so great right now. And I know this is happening in the, in the car world as well, that you get this classic that you can still drive on the street or you totally. can still drive around the world because it has air conditioning usually because it has EFI, because it has a decent power steering, power like steering, yeah, sure. good brakes, all yeah. these things usually has most of the modern conveniences that you have in a newer car, yep. all the ones you really need at least. Sure. But in the classic body style. So I think that the, the Hilux is going to be interesting. I was starting to have some conversations with Steve with, from Land Cruisers Direct, mm-hmm. who I purchased the 74 series Land Cruiser from years ago. And he's like, they're out there and there's some really incredible incredible one. There's some very low mileage, right-hand drive, you know, the white quad cab, Mm -hmm. solid axle Toyota Hilux that you can get for the low twenties, which is extremely exciting. They're very cool. They're still very rare. So when you see them, it is, it's especially here on the road in North America. It's uh, it's exciting. Makes me want one every single time. Yeah, for sure. What I have seen in, in my experience most recently around the Hilux, what we've used them for is for polar conditions. Mm. And that is because the Hilux has a very efficient motor in the D4D, even more so in the newest Hilux. So 2016 and newer, they had a, I think it's a 1.7. I could be off on that a little bit, but it was a smaller engine that was available. Yeah, I should double check that. And maybe it's a 2.2, but there's a smaller displacement, a turbo diesel than what came in the previous model. I think the Hilux before that was a three liter D4D turbo diesel. The newer one is even smaller displacement and gets even better fuel economy. But we would build them up like for Expedition 7, for example, we use Hilux to cross Antarctica. And the reason why they're so useful is because they have a metric ton of payload. Uh, You can easily modify them to take up to a 44 inch tall tire. And there's ways that they do that that is actually a little bit easier even than on like, let's say a 70 series Land Cruiser. So they just cut out a lot of the body and they put on these giant fender flares and they only add a uh, little bit of suspension lift, a little bit of body lift. They add some massive fuel tanks to them. And then you have a relatively lightweight vehicle with a gigantic tire on it that gives for an, an incredible amount of footprint. In fact, the weight distribution of the tire is less than the human footprint. Interesting. So um, you could actually drive over not just a foot. You could drive over a person with those trucks at three PSI and it wouldn't injure them at all. That's an interesting fact. (laughs) Yeah. So this content is brought to you by Overland Journal, our premium quality print publication. The magazine was founded in 2006 with the goal of providing independent equipment and vehicle reviews, along with the most stunning adventures and photography. We care deeply about the countries and cultures we visit and share our experiences freely with our readers. We also have zero advertorial policy and do not accept any advertiser compensation for our reviews. By subscribing to Overland Journal, you're helping to support our employee-owned and veteran-owned publication. Your support also provides resources and funding for content like you are watching or listening to right now. You can subscribe directly on our website at overlandjournal.com. The Hilux is 
extremely popular for polar travel. So it's the only vehicle that's regularly used in in Antarctica for big expeditions is the Hilux. Some of them are converted into a six by six so that they can take more fuel capacity with them. And then as they add weight, now they've added an extra set of tires, which again, now distributes that additional weight over that large footprint. So they're incredibly capable. There are a few things that they have to do to them to endure that kind of use. And it all comes from the 200 series. So if you're ever wondering what the strongest Land Cruiser ever made was, it was the 200. So they take the rear axle out of a 200 they make the Hilux a five link, and then that gives that rear axle a ton of supporting weight for the, all of that additional fuel load. And then the other thing that they found in very difficult and challenging conditions was the transfer case on the Hilux would also suffer, and they would actually overheat in Antarctica, which is unbelievable to consider, but ice and stuff will collect underneath and snow will collect underneath the vehicle and it will reduce the airflow across the transfer case. So they would actually swap out the transfer case to a 200 series as well. So, but the Hilux is definitely the polar vehicle of choice for a lot of reasons. And it's also used for a bunch of other stuff. People travel around the world in them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. uh, It doesn't seem as as common as a Land Cruiser is. Sure. But when you see them, it, it just makes sense. I'm thinking about the Euro camper. When they're converting vehicles to a live-in camper, it's always a Hilux. Chop off the back, yep. build a big build box on the back, and then you have a camper with uh, well, you have a truck with the payload that can handle the camper, camper to live in, and that's still a capable vehicle to get around the world. Nice little four by four motorhome. I wonder why sure. that is. I wonder why we still see more seventy series. Is it just the romance of the seventy? I think that's part of it. It's um, got to be because they're so charming. They yeah. really are, and, and the new ones are so so fantastic. Yeah, the old ones are always beat on and yeah. worn out and. So low. It's the same thing. Same. I guarantee it's the same reason we still drive our 90 pickup around all the time. Yeah. It's, it's the romance. It's the, yeah. the truck you look back at when you park, and <laughs> when you take a photo of it. Yeah. It just, I don't know, it inspires you to, to share that photo, to post it on Instagram, to do all of those normal things we want to want to do nowadays. So you just don't get that same feeling when it's not the classic. It's the true. Classic look. It's true. And I would recommend those that are listening, check out Lisa and Jason from To Ride the World. And I think they changed because they were on motorcycles. Did they yeah. change the name? Now? Yeah. So they were, they were two wheel nomad. Two wheel nomad. I believe they're two-wheel nomad. four wheel nomad now. Four wheel nomad. Yeah. There we go. So, so we met them when they're two wheel and we've yet to see their Hilux in person, but yeah, they've got a, a white Hilux that they put all the cool stuff on. Yeah. And Jason Spafford's photography mm-hmm. is exceptional. Lisa has written regularly for Overland Journal and Expedition Portal as well. So check out their Instagram handle. For sure. So, and I think usually Jason's photography is filling Overland Journal nowadays. So yeah. It's pretty cool. And they've traveled to Iceland in their Hilux and they've traveled to Scotland, the Faroe been, Islands yeah. and, and throughout the UK and they were getting it ready to go down Africa right when the pandemic hit. So yeah. I think that waylaid their plans a little bit, but yeah. they were able to travel closer to home and yeah. share with us what they're seeing there and kind of inspired definitely inspired Ashley and I to go spend some more time in, in that was that region of the world. Yeah. No, that's a great account to follow. And and for those that are listening, if there's others that you'd like to recommend, we can we can share those out to the audience so that people can check out and follow other Toyota trucks going around the world. Yeah. Do you have any more thoughts on the Hilux from your perspective? I'd like to spend more time in them, I think. I'd also like to get one. I love the idea of the mid nineties quad cab trucks, diesel, totally. solid axle. I don't really have a use for one, but <laughs> I have a want for one. Yeah, no, yeah, that's, you're right. It would be a little bit redundant. 
for yeah. you. Yeah, I don't you need another. Got, you have a mid nineties Toyota yeah. pickup right behind yeah. you. Part of the reason why we sold our Mitsubishi Indelica that was a ninety three uh, little L three hundred was that I didn't need another antiquated Japanese four by four that can't go uh, <laughs> proper speeds on highway. Yeah. Um, well, you took care of that with the Tundra. I sure did. <laughs> five seven has no trouble with that. Yeah, I think after you're uh, you're stuck going up hills in third gear at five thousand yeah. RPM and half the speed of everybody else for long enough that you know what I think we just need a little bit more power. Yeah, I was really impressed with the new Hilux. The last time I was in South Africa, I had the opportunity to drive a brand new Hilux that had uh, the full complement of Ezeon components on it and a canopy over the back. And it just drove it all over South Africa. And it was just such a pleasure to drive. It was so easy to drive. It was effortless. Got really excellent fuel economy. You know, you can get, even with a roof tent and everything on the top, you're in the like seven, eight liters per hundred K, which is really good. Yeah. It's a, and now of course these are lower speeds. So like if you were on like the equivalent of an interstate in South Africa, you'd start to see that drop off fairly quickly. But if you were just kind of putting along at 80 to hundred kilometers an hour, it was really good fuel economy. That's great. And I think the D4D is about the same, but also not a lot of power in those things. You're not, yeah. you're not going anywhere fast. Yeah. This one had plenty of power. Yeah. They squeezed a whole lot of technology and it has additional gears in the transmission as well. And uh, with this one was an automatic that I was driving, but, and also very capable off-road rear locking differential available in the new Hilux. That goes so a long way. It does. It goes a long way. So yeah, really fun to drive off-road. Yeah. Looking awesome. forward to spending some more time in, in Hiluxes and faraway places one of these days. Yeah. And we'll drop a bunch of additional media into the YouTube video for this one. If you'd like to find out more about Richard's trip with his... 1993 Toyota pickup. 1990, but that's 1990. Close. Oh yeah. You, did you have something? I did, that was I did have a 1993 as well. <laughs> so that, confused. that was almost exactly the you same. Have, yeah. You've covered every year in the nineties with Trying. the truck. <laughs> <laughs> so you can check out destaglory.com and we've got a great video on YouTube of Richard's truck on the Expedition Portal YouTube channel. And there's a lot more content available on expeditionportal.com as well about the truck and their travels. And there's some stuff coming out with their new vehicle build of a Toyota Tundra, which we're going to talk about here in yeah. one of the upcoming podcasts. Yeah. So this, this is the best thing about this little pickup behind us is it gave us the opportunity to go and travel on pretty limited budget and learn. And that's learning from different types of suspension and different types of brakes and the things we like and the things we don't like about the antiquated vehicles. And we're taking all of that and putting our knowledge base that we have now into our 2008 Tundra. I would personally love to see anyone who has built these Toyota pickups and Hilux and then listening to this podcast. I would love it if you could send me a couple photos into Instagram. We we can share those out to our audience. You can reach me at scott.a.brady on Instagram. Richard, if, if you wanted to get in touch with Richard uh, to ask him about what ball joints he used on his front <laughs> suspension. You sure can. Reach me at Destaglory. So just at Destaglory on Instagram um, and I'll tell you to get it in genuine or triple five points. <laughs> you just saved yourself so many DMs right there. Exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, that was really fun to talk about Toyota trucks. They are literally the Swiss army knife of overland vehicles. They're very affordable, shockingly reliable on par with the Land Cruiser in our experience, certainly within the Hilux range. Very exciting vehicles to see people using around the world. And we just encourage everybody to take a look at them. We thank you all for listening and we will talk to you next time. 